And of course, it's easy to get traction when your Western governments have have failed so many sectors of society. But even he, I'm told, sort of at some point sort of succumbed to having to own a private jet because without it, no one would respect it. As you can see the system is calcifying. There's no, there are no new ideas. I think there is this growing group within the Moscow elite who are fed up. Listening to The Naked Pravda, I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. The show has been missing in action for the past few weeks, but we're back today with a sparkling new episode devoted entirely to Vladimir Putin's rumored private fortune, particularly his $1.5 billion retreat on the Black Sea. If you've been following the news in Russia this week, you've no doubt already heard about Putin's palace, as it's known. But the story itself is more than a decade old. In December 2010, a St. Petersburg businessman named Sergei Kolesnikov penned a nifty four-page open letter to then-President Dmitry Medvedev, outlining how the palace came to be. Kolesnikov says he and a retired KGB colonel founded a medical supplies company back in the early 1990s. The St. Petersburg municipal government happened to acquire a stake in the firm, and Deputy Mayor Vladimir Putin dutifully represented the city's interests. In early 2000, a guy named Nikolai Shamilov, whose son would later marry and then very dangerously divorce one of Putin's daughters, this fellow proposed that Russia's oligarchs should start donating money to that firm. And a sweet chunk of this cash was embezzled to accounts controlled indirectly by Putin, and those funds were used to break ground on a fabulous mansion on the Black Sea coast. All this is now familiar again because of a massive investigative report released this week by opposition figure Alexei Navalny, who flew home to Moscow on January 17th and was promptly arrested and jailed. As I record these words, cities across Russia are hours away from planned protests in support of Navalny, who timed his investigation into Putin's palace to land exactly as the world watches to see how his movement mobilizes this weekend. To learn more about how the Kremlin's slush funds operate in Russia and abroad, how Vladimir Putin allegedly amassed a fortune in secret, and how his early days in the KGB still influence Russian politics today, the Naked Pravda turned to Catherine Belton, a special correspondent at Reuters and the author of the 2020 book, Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. I asked her what she makes of Navalny's new report, which directly cites her book. We also discussed how dark money in Russia is used for more nefarious causes than living high on the hog on the Black Sea coastline. Your opinion, what is new in Navalny's investigative report about about Putin's palace because you know we have there are these 3D visualizations of course that's new as far as I can tell but a lot of the YouTube video and a lot of the written report focuses on Putin's KGB days in Dresden on the commercial machinations that disguise how the palace and you know his wineries are, are financed that that goes back to Sergei Kolesnikov's open letter you know more than a decade ago or about a decade ago now what would you say is actually new here 
I think what he's done so spectacularly well is uh, the visualization of the palace and really the uncovering of how extensively luxurious and ridiculous it is because it's it's like an incredible symbol of no holds barred corruption essentially you know as you have the pole dancing room you've got the casino you've got the underground ice hockey arena it's just incredible and and so yeah I mean people have written about it before I wrote about it in my book we've known about it since 2010 but then the palace project itself was also mushroomed since then I mean I think when Kolesnikov first wrote his open letter in 2010, I think the valuation of the palace then was $1 billion, which of course is is no mean sum, but now it's like 1.4 and even more kind of additions have been made to it. And he was just so effective in depicting it, you know, and to be able to get hold of the actual internal plans and based on that kind of reconstruct what the rooms actually look like, that's a real feature. And uh, yeah, I've, I've chatted to some people who've been working, you know, sort of been involved in the story also since 2010. And they were like, oh my God, I didn't know about the underground hockey arena. Like Navalny managed to get hold of things that, that people who, you know, were involved in this story from the beginning had no idea about. So it's really a, a very important and, and strong symbol. And of course, Peskov continues to deny that Putin has anything to do with the palace. But what Navalny also did very well was to paint this in a very painstaking way the the connections and how it's held sort of via these sort of front men for on behalf of Putin and you can see very clearly the connections and also the fact that it's guarded by the presidential guard <laughs> probably right, means something right. too is it I mean it's weird that one person would have such this enormous place for himself or is it is, are there is there a city of people living in this building or is it empty do you have any idea of like what's what actually is going on there other than the construction crews and the managers and so on. It just seems like a lot of stuff for one person. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I guess the next task is maybe if it's possible to get more drone footage or constant drone footage of the goings on and and who's coming in and out. But unfortunately, that might be hard now that so much attention has been drawn to it. But I mean, these palaces, they're, they're like symbols of power. I mean, that's the other thing about wealth in Russia. It is a display of power. You have to have the biggest yacht. You have to have the biggest private jet and you must have the biggest uh, palace in order to sort of, you know, kind of have respect. I mean, I was told a story of sort of a one-time very liberal kind of uh, guy who then sort of rose through the ranks of the economy ministry and then became an official in the Kremlin administration. And he sort of started out in a liberal think tank and he was seen as the one kind of good person within the sort of the Putin entourage within that government. But even he, I'm told, sort of at some point sort of succumbed to having to own a private jet because without it, no one would respect him. So it begins at that level and then it rises to this incredible scale. And Putin, uh, you know, I think he has, he because 
because he's been surrounded by yes men ever since he became president. He has these delusions about himself. He does believe he is like a czar and people call him czar and he's surrounded by people who tell him that he saved the country from collapse, that he's been sent to Russia by God. And, you know, and then you suddenly begin to surround yourself with all these accoutrements of power and you kind of believe in your own Kool-Aid. Do you think he's enjoying it? I know I'm asking you to psychos remote psychology here, but I, of, I often wonder, especially looking at this, I think to myself, well, that looks pretty nice. Maybe a little too much, but, you know, better too much than too little. Um, Yeah, I think he probably does. I mean, I've been told <laughs> by two people close to him, uh, one not close to him anymore, but one still pretty close uh, until very recently, that, you know, that he's he likes living comfortably. He likes to, you know, like he doesn't start work before 11 a.m. He likes to have a massage in the morning. He goes swimming. One of these people close to him, ex-KGB, said that he's a Sibaritni Chalaviak. He's a Sibarite. Like he, he likes to live in luxury. And that's really one quite important facet of his, his character. Reading your, your book and reading Navalny's new investigation, I think it's easy, I think, to get, you know, turned around, spun around, a bit confused by all the financial dealings and the intrigue. You know, and that's that's confusing by design, of course. And people are holding money and they're holding companies and, and real estate and property, you know, in their own names, but they don't actually control or or actually really really own it. They're like layers upon layers of shell companies and offshores to make attribution hard or even impossible sometimes. Is there a simple way to explain all this? Like if you had, say, you're in like an elevator with somebody like Joe Biden or Boris Johnson or somebody, you know, influential, powerful, who, but maybe doesn't necessarily, isn't deeply aware of Russian politics. How would you try to explain that if you just had kind of a little bit? And this is, I'm, I'm hoping to get the answer as well, obviously, because I really... I can't keep all the names in my head, and I feel like I've I'm already, like as soon as I move to one, you know, new chapter, I've already lost the thread of the other one, and and I'm, I get very easily confused. Can you kind of like? epitomize what's going on for me. Essentially, he has trusted old friends and he trusts the ones the most that he knew from his Dresden days, from his KGB days. And they're the ones who, in the first instance, he kind of, uh, who hold assets on behalf of him and for the Kremlin. Um, so it's 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 a network in, in which of trusted allies who are essentially his, his front men. So the proxies for the Kremlin, proxies for him. But of course, it's complicated by design and and the longer he stayed in power, the more complicated it's become because it then became obvious what he was doing in having sort of men close to him that he'd known since Dresden or St. Petersburg, like Gennady Timchenko, who was sanctioned by the US for being a frontman for Putin, though Timchenko continues to deny it to the present day. And so then it kind of goes further and further down a chain of, of, of fronts and, and other allies, but it's complicated by design, as you pointed out. So that kind of genuinely people, you know, it's it's incredibly difficult to follow. And what Navalny did very well was to kind of use the palace of this symbol of kind of outsized corruption. But there's another dimension to it, because of course, these front men aren't just front men for Putin's personal wealth. When I was researching my book, you know, when I was talking to associates of Gennady Timchenko, for instance, they would say, look, it's not just like personal wealth. I mean, you know, we know now that Putin has a palace worth 1.4 billion, but we know that he has 
has many, many more billions of dollars at his command because essentially he's taken over all the country's strategic cash flows and he has his proxies in charge of all these cash flows. If we're going to take the example of Gennady Timchenko, he was a proxy not just for Putin's personal wealth, but also for the Kremlin. He has to carry out strategic tasks for the Kremlin to allow Putin and his men to shore up power at home and also expand influence abroad. So it's, it, no, Navalny is, is, is right to focus on this personal corruption, but there's also another dimension to it. It's not just about lining your own pockets. It's also about projecting power, both domestically and abroad. And in a way, the palace is a symbol of that projection of power. Navalny actually holds up your book in, in the video, and he cites it in the report. And it, you can see how impressively thick it is in the, when you watch the YouTube video. But he he seems to maybe reject one of your central arguments that Putin was you know a major player already back in in Dresden. For readers, can you lay out the various schools of thought when it comes to Putin's Dresden service? Because I know that in your book you argue that there's evidence that he was already extremely influential as early as then, and then there are others that argue, and maybe maybe Navalny's not arguing this, but it seemed to me that he was suggesting that he made important connections then, but when he got back to Russia, he was kind of a small fry who needed to be lifted up and not someone who had already been selected for great things. It's both of those. I didn't think that in my book that I said he was extremely influential. I said Dresden was an important place. It was an important place for technology smuggling and Putin did play quite a crucial role in sort of interacting with Hans Modrow, who was the party secretary of the SED and the, the Politburo had him in mind to take over as the next leader of, of East Germany under perestroika type reforms. And that Putin was mid-level, but he certainly wasn't sort of as insignificant as he himself has tried to paint himself to be. Putin has expended great efforts in trying to sort of denigrate his career in East Germany. He said that I was was so boring there, I had nothing to do but drink beer and I drank so much beer I put on 20 pounds, but there's no evidence from the photos he ever put on that much weight. And I also expended a, a great deal of effort in destroying a lot of the archives. Yeah, I think Navalny found a few more photos than I had found, but there isn't any evidence of what they were up to operationally. Putin himself and his colleagues who've been allowed to write books about this have said that they just wrote up boring reports and they only managed to kind of uh, recruit a few agents and there was absolutely nothing to do there. But, you know, other ex-former KGB officials that I've spoken to have said that Dresden was actually quite an important hub. There's been a very influential book written in Germany based on investigations by the German parliament, the Bundestag, which shows that Dresden was a really important hub for technology smuggling. It was home to Robotron, which was the biggest electronics manufacturer in East Germany. It had already successfully cloned the IBM. We know from a defector who was working with Putin that Putin was working closely then with Matthias Warnig, who we know later became one of Putin's closest, closest cronies. Uh, but that relationship stems back to those days when Warnig was really, again, according to Stasi records, a real 
hotshot and that Dresden was a very important center for kind of the preparations that the Stasi and all of the Stasi were making in preparation for the fall that they knew that the communist regime wasn't going to hold, but they needed to preserve their networks in case of collapse. So it became this, this hub for kind of fake technology smuggling deals in which there was one Stasi agent called Martin Schlaff, who was tasked with building this most expensive hard disk plant ever made in the whole of East Germany in nearby Thuringen. But all the deals were fake. He was given like tens of millions of Deutschmarks to kind of ship in components and build the plant, but none of the components arrived. The plant wasn't built. And all this money was funneled off into companies that were later staffed with senior members of the Dresden Foreign Intelligence Arm. And then what was also interesting in that, we see later that Schlaff kind of appears again in, in the Putin regime's financial and influence network. He is a head of kind of Gazprom trading intermediary in Austria. And he's also investigated for bribing Ariel Sharon in Israel. He's friends with Assad and the head of the PLO. He's friends with Gaddafi. And he's like this kind of, you know, all this old Soviet patronage networks are, are around this guy and he holds he also owns a network of casinos across central and eastern europe you know he's 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 a cheese and that's where you also see sort of gazprom trading intermediaries being used for influence peddling because the company that he was involved in centrex was trying to set up a deal with a company part owned by one of berlusconi's closest friends that was going to net the company billions of dollars in revenues and 34 percent of it was going to go to Berlusconi's best friend and the Italian parliament actually shut the deal down because they thought the money was going to go directly into Berlusconi's pocket. So you can see sort of elements of how the Putin regime operates in, in Dresden, like through smuggling deals and also through kind of these preparations for the collapse of the communist regime. You can also see that in Putin's career when he moved to St. Petersburg, that there were elements in the KGB who tried to keep hold of the reins, even though everything was collapsing around them. They tried to preserve networks. They tried to sort of keep the kind of influence in the background as, as much as they could, even though everything was collapsing around them. Of course, it was it was force majeure, but they tried to siphon out what they could and they tried to kind of retain their connections so that they could sort of bide their time and hope to come back to power. And then, of course, with the appointment and then the election of Putin as president, in your book, you argue this is essentially the, the restoration of KGB rule. Is that a, a fair characterization. Yeah. So this is something I'm not sure I quite understand how how Navalny addresses it exactly because you know he's he's obviously eager to highlight all the various corruption that that in, in Putin's presidency and so on. Yes. But I do think that and this could just be a political approach. He's also eager to stress continuity with the 1990s. I don't think that he embraces the idea that Putin is this watershed moment because he doesn't want to suggest that Putin did anything to kind of change the 90s. The 90s are bad for everyone in, in Russian memory. And so Navalny is intent on, on linking these two eras and not treating Putin's presidency as any kind of watershed moment. Is there an argument there or is that entirely just political? Hey, well, he he isn't new in the sense that, you know, the, yeah, of course, the, the 90s that was riddled with corruption and chaos and sort of Putin and his cronies were in the background of that. Of course, they were part, they were working with gangsters. And I write about that in my book as well in St. Petersburg. 
but he was part of a KGB revanche. I think, you know, there are different approaches. I think Navalny, he has to focus on kind of the one element of, of Putin's rule, and that's the kind of the mega corruption and this sort of mafia style of running the country. You know, you have to, if, if you're an opposition figure, you're probably not going to look at sort of anything that, that Putin might have been doing strategically. The Again, the sort of the, the corruption, of course, he and his cronies have been lining their own pockets and it's, it's terrible and they've been really enriching themselves at the expense of the population. And he's right to kind of focus on that element, but there's a broader dimension to it as well because it's not, it's, yeah, you can't spend that much money on, on palaces, even though it's out of control spending. You use the rest of it to kind of try and create a, a regime that rightly or wrongly, tries to use that wealth in, in order to undermine enemies abroad, which is what the KGB did in, in Soviet days as well. But I think, you know, it kind of also, it also draws on on themes in my book about sort of how Putin came to power because he proved himself useful to the Yeltsin family in protecting them against the probe into Mebatex, the Swiss reconstruction company that had given the Yeltsin family credit cards and they're under tremendous pressure. Yeah, I went to great lengths trying to describe kind of what was going on there and how the Yeltsin family were actually really under threat and kind of quite scared by the prosecutor probe and how sort of Putin was really kind of playing a double game. He was trying to protect them, but essentially he, he was in touch with some of the people behind the probe at the same time. So I didn't actually think that my book kind of presented the 90s and the 2000s as, as two separate eras because I actually, I thought I tried to kind of had it as, as kind of one continuum. Of course, Yeltsin, you know, he had liberal ideals. I think he really believed in the ideals, but he wasn't able to live up to what he believed in because behind him, maybe there were a few liberals in his government, but they certainly weren't the majority. And beyond that, there was just incredible corruption going on. And there was kind of a group of KGB who still retained some power and influence behind the scenes. Is Putin as much a former KGB man now as he was 20 years ago? Because one of the things that Navalny argues in the investigation is that the management scheme of the palace and the wineries, he says that's more important than the ownership structure, that the management scheme has sort of shifted away from people associated with the FSO and the Kremlin toward actual family members. And that I don't recall him saying what that signifies, but... That seemed to me to echo some things I've heard or read over the years that Putin may be abandoning some of the friends that he said he would never, never abandon and that he's possibly now, I don't know, he's, he's, he's closing himself off even more and, and kind of choosing new friends. Is that, would you, have you observed that at all or is that, is that a kind of a misreading? 
Perhaps the links with the FSO and the Kremlin have diminished the more scrutiny the palace has, has come under because, of course, I mean, they're the red flags, right, which point to Putin. So you have another layer of, of fronts. And it was the same thing with, you know, with the bagman for Putin, like the first circle. It was Timchenko, it was Yuri Kovalchuk, the owner of Bank Russia, Arkady Rotenberg, and, and so on, these people that he knew since his childhood and well not of Rotenberg since his child in St. Petersburg and Kovalchuk and, and Timchenko at least since the early 90s and some say in Timchenko's case from before when he was in Dresden when allegedly Timchenko was also operating undercover for the KGB too but in Zurich and Vienna there was a suggested connection there but Timchenko of course denies it but you can see too that as more and more allegations have been made publicly and then also later by the US Treasury that these are the, the kind of of the cash carriers, the bag man for Putin's money. You've seen him retreat to kind of other childhood friends. And then so you, for instance, you have Sergei Roldugin, who was sort of, again, Putin's uh, friend since childhood in St. Petersburg, had absolutely nothing to do with uh, business at all. He's a, just a renowned cello player, yet the Panama Papers uncovered that he was a kind of a front man in this network of offshore companies through which $2 billion had been kind of flushing. And, and one person close to Putin said that, yes, Roald Dugin is the front man of last resort. He is Putin's golden parachute, that he's the one holding the cash. But, uh, you know, I think it's it's not only him because you also have Nikolai Shamalov, who was one of the originators of the cash for building the palace. And he was certainly, according to Kolesnikov and some of the recordings that Kolesnikov took out of Russia with him, he was another frontman of last resort. So I think you 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 have you have if you're Putin, you have many, but I think the the circle kind of changes as people attract scrutiny. It's the same, like, for instance, with the banks that loaned money for the federal security services of the Kremlin regime, like sometimes they attracts too much scrutiny, so they get closed down and then they open another one up. So I think it just happens that way. As you were, you were talking about the golden parachute, that made me wonder, in your view, does that mean that Putin actually intends to jump out of the plane at some point and retire and live peacefully at his, at his one point whatever billion dollar palace or is that just i mean what's is the parachute just in i mean what, what would it be just in case of is it in case he has to flee to belarus or what's the plan there what would be the thinking i think putin would love to retire to his beautiful palace and yeah who wouldn't <laughs> do nothing apart from like play at the casino and swim in the pool all day um you know i think he'd really love to but and I and I think, you know, he's been casting about for ways to do that. But, you know, when you've accumulated so much power in such a nefarious way and you've taken over so many cash flows, I mean, you only have to look at what happened to Yukos and Mikhail Khodorkovsky way back in 2003 in that well-known case that's kind of been recognized now in international courts as being politically motivated to understand how much he and his kind of cronies have to lose. So there's, there's no risk-free way of doing it. It. So I think the national referendum that allows him to keep power till 2036, of course, I don't think Putin wants to stay in power till 2036. Probably some of those around him would like to because that's the safe way they get to hold on to all their winnings. 
but I don't think it's it's feasible because you can see the system is calcifying. There's no there are no new ideas. I think there is this growing group within the Moscow elite who are fed up of the power of the FSB and the fact that they have to share all their wealth with the security services, or perhaps they've had their business empires seized by now. I mean, like the, it's getting, it's kind of getting out of control, and so. There's nothing this group of the Moscow elite can do, which is why sort of what's happening now with Navalny is, is so interesting and important. Like how much kind of support is he going to receive in the protests this weekend, which I'm sure won't just last this weekend. They will, it will, it's going to go on for a long time now. One of the, the, your book's key arguments and probably one of the most fascinating things about it is that you argue that, you know, yes, Putin-era cronyism is a lot about self-enrichment palaces and, and slush funds and all this stuff. But one of the purposes of these slush funds, and you mentioned this earlier just in, as we were talking, is that it's it's really more than enough money you could ever spend on jets and, and palaces. And they seem to be trying to spend as much as possible, but there's still more left over after that. And that a lot of that money goes toward these projects that are essentially Soviet-era plans to undermine the West in various ways. And, you know, you talk about influencing elections, buying off officials. Can you share a few kind of prominent examples of this just to give listeners a sense of of what it is you're talking about? And then also, have they been successful in any of these undermining efforts? I mean, obviously, that's that's a key question. I think, yeah, you begin trying to reassert control over cash flow as they did with, for example, with Khodorkovsky and Yukos. I mean, obviously that began almost just, well, politically, they justified it politically to themselves. This guy, he's independent, he's going to challenge our power and he's going to sell out to the West, including our pipelines and production facilities. So you justify it to yourself ideologically because you've taken command of the law courts and all these structures of power. You can take control of the company in a way that not only you enrich yourself, but you also kind of eradicate a political rival. So you begin doing that with other companies and other companies are also, as we've seen in the the tributes, the so-called donations paid by Abramovich and Mordashov, for instance, allegedly into the Petromed slush fund, which was the start of the fund to build the palace. And, you know, you, you get these slush funds, which kind of create these pools of what I call black cash. And they were also around in the 90s and the Kremlin would use it to buy officials and make sure local elections went the Kremlin's way. You needed a pool of kind of dark money so that you could just make sure you can shore up your own power and you take control of like other independent minded companies so that you can have more access to that type of black cash. But at some point you kind of, you reach a critical mass because you have control of the law courts. You can essentially subsume as, as much as you want of the Russian economy. I spoke to Yakunin when the US uh, sanctioned Tim Chinka and, and him. And he said then, you know, he said Putin can access the cash of the entire country. And and so, you know, in many ways he, he was right. So once you can do that, I think, you know, 
I think you have to look back to the mindset that they formed in the 80s, you know, when Putin was in Dresden. And you can very clearly see that then, you know, Russia, Soviet Union couldn't uh, compete directly militarily or economically with the West. So instead, it resorted to active measures. And they were trying to sort of buy off and corrupt officials then. They would create their own influence networks. They were trying to, they were also trying, you know, they were trying to spread disinformation campaigns and so on. And then, of course, there was much less cash at the Soviet Union's command. They used to kind of create their cash networks. They had networks of friendly firms to fund influence operations by selling commodities at rock bottom Soviet prices and then selling on these uh, kind of uh, raw materials at the world prices and, and letting the the intermediaries kind of net the difference. And, and these, these funds would then go to sort of funding allied communist parties or other kind of political allies or to try and run inf other influence operations. So you can see the pattern which has then been replicated by the Putin regime now that they've reacquired control of strategic cash flows, only on its, now it's on a scale like a zillion times magnified because, you know, Russia has become so integrated into the global economy. And plus you have this enormous raw materials, wealth with no one really watching what you're doing. So you can just dip into the pots whenever you want. So for, as for examples of that, you could see, for instance, there was a bank in Prague in the Czech Republic the first Russian Czech bank, which was giving loans to Marine Le Pen's National Front Party. I think that was 2013 or 2014, if I'm not mistaken. And that bank uh, was closely linked with structures owned by Gennady Timchenko, though, of course, again, it's in this chain, which allows Timchenko all kinds of plausible deniability. So we, we see some examples, but unfortunately, you know, the Russians are very adept at using chains upon chains of, of offshore companies. So I think even Western law enforcement are really only getting to grips with tracing how the money has flown. And I think we've seen a lot of it go through the UK and Scotland, where we have these notoriously murky LLPs where you don't have to disclose any ownership. You don't even have to have a real business. So you can even completely fake your accounts. And we've seen tens of billions of dollars come out of Russia in this way through schemes, which are often kind of under the oversight of a special department in the FSB. Is, is it a way to money? Are they getting anything done? Um, I think, you know, they've pretty successful in the last four years, uh, especially since Trump came to power. I mean, we've seen these great raucous divisions uh, across Europe and in the US. Of course, these divisions existed anyway, but I think we see signs, well, we've seen the signs of, of Russian funding and support uh, for far-right parties in Italy and in the Czech Republic and in Poland. And we've seen signs of support for them in Spain. We are yet to the get, get to the bottom of what happened in Brexit. Unfortunately, our national crime agency has been unable to go beyond the bounds of a loan provided to Aaron Banks from one of his Isle of Man companies. We don't know where the Isle of Man company got that funding for because our national crime agency has no funding, no, no empowerment to, to look beyond that particular point, which is incredible, really. So, so, and, and also we see many unanswered questions too in the kind of the financial support 
around Trump, which may or may not be answered now that he's out of power. And of course, this all reached its zenith in 2019, when, of course, you have Putin essentially telling my ex-colleagues at the FT that liberalism is obsolete. It's kind of like Putin almost announcing mission accomplished, you know. But unfortunately, that was a, a short-sighted and far too far too early to to announce that because, of course, we we've seen uh, Joe Biden elected now in the U.S. and perhaps will also allow greater investigation of some of these very murky financial flows. Well, at least he didn't put it on a banner and hang it on an aircraft carrier. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but uh, but again, I mean, of course, I mean, all these divisions they existed anyway, but and the West made it so much easier for uh, Russia to gain leverage and this type of activity because after the 2008 financial crisis you had all these austerity programs and deeper and deeper inequality so of course it was much easier to find support for policies that called for a kind of conservative traditionalist values and of course we've seen people like Konstantin Malafeev and Vladimir Yakunin sort of openly say that we're trying to support Christian conservative values in Europe and they're very openly speak out against the degenerate West. And of course, it's easy to get traction when your Western governments have have failed so many sectors of society. Do you think that that the average Russian or that maybe the average Putin supporter, let's say, if given your book and if they read the whole thing and they concluded from it that, okay, Putin lines his pockets and so do his cronies, they line their pockets, but they're also taking a lot of this money and they're spending it on undermining the West. Would a lot of them think, okay, that sounds fine. I think maybe at some point, but less and less so now, because, you know, I mean, it might be fine as long as your own living standards are rising, but they're not anymore, right? And so you have already had sort of growing questions about how much money Russia is openly and publicly spending in Syria, for instance, and like all these billion dollar loans it's made to prop up Maduro in, in Venezuela at the same time as it was raising the pension age and saying, we don't have enough money to pay your pensions anymore. So I think that type of game only lasts so long. And and obviously, you know, of course, Russians want a better standing on the global stage, but there are better ways of going about it than accumulating cash so that you can kind of undermine your rivals in the West. You could try to build a strong, vibrant, competitive economy at home, you know. (laughs) I mean, you could try at least, but obviously I think Putin and his guys, they they know and they're much better at these sort of covert operations that are more destructive than kind of productive. Is it hugely different to use a slush fund that way than what, say, the CIA has done over the decades? No, I think the CIA has, of course, been up to the the same gains. It's slightly different for the US because I think they, well, they used to have to ask Congress for permission for various operations. I'm sure they also found lots of ways around that too. I mean, the great claim of the Kremlin is that, you know, they always point to George Soros, for instance, as being the front man for the West. So they created Konstantin Malafeev in response, who's their anti-George Soros. But, you know, whereas for George Soros says he's for liberal openness and tolerance, then Malafeev favors for very conservative, intolerant values. So, you know, it's just polar opposites of each other.
You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from Catherine Belton, a special correspondent at Reuters and the author of the 2020 book, Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English-language show, and I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in. You can help put this program in front of more people. Who wouldn't want to do that? Thank you for listening, and come back soon.